please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. As you turn there, let me just again invite you to join us this evening at the farmhouse and a map of the farmhouse, map to the farmhouse is in your bulletin, but join us this evening for our church's annual meeting, a great time of talking about what the Lord has done in the church the, the, this past year and um, hearing about uh, things that perhaps are, are coming in our future and it's a great opportunity to ask questions. Uh, Dave loves tough questions. In fact, spend the afternoon just thinking, what are the hardest questions that maybe I could ask Dave this evening? I always enjoy that very much. Uh, but and, and do be sticking by your, your emails and your and look at the church website, the Facebook page, in, in case the weather uh, allow, ne- uh, necessitates us rescheduling that as well. Well, please, uh, if you're not already there, make sure you're there in Luke chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 38 through 42 as we conclude the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We've been making our way through this Gospel for some time now, and it just keeps getting sweeter as we study God's Word. And please stand with me as we read this story together in honor of God. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's pray. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for you. As Dave prayed earlier, we know that you are great in and of yourself, and you're great without respect to any other created creature, and, and yet as your creation, we are grateful that in your greatness, you have deemed it necessary to display your glory in our lives as well, and so we would ask that we would be faithful in that task, that we would seek you with all our hearts, with our entire beings, and bring honor and glory that is due to your name. We pray that you'd open our hearts as we look here at your word this morning. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, imagine that I asked you to evaluate the health of a marriage relationship, and I brought you and showed you a certain husband and wife, and I said, I'd like you to evaluate how healthy this marriage is. And you noticed, first of all, that this couple was extremely busy. You watched the wife, and you saw that she was very involved in her children's lives. She was involved in their school activities. She was involved in their extracurricular activities, taking them to practices and to games and to activities with their friends. She was involved in a part-time job to help the family financially. She was involved in church activities. She was involved in helping her husband in, in his life. She ran errands for him to help him out sometimes. She did a lot around the house. As you look at her and you evaluate what she's doing on a weekly basis, 
one word comes to mind, and that is busy. She is doing a lot of things. And then you turn your attention, and you're watching the husband, and you see that the husband is busy as well. He's involved in a very stressful job. He has a tough job situation, and so he's involved in that job, and he's working long hours in order to be able to provide for his family as well. He attends all of his children's school activities. He's there at every baseball game, every football game, every swim meet. He is very involved in his children's lives as well. He's involved in helping his wife around the house as well. He's doing house projects and he's involved in yard work and he is extremely busy. You look at both of them and you see they're busy, busy, busy. But then as you look a little closer at the marriage relationship, you realize that even though the husband and wife are involved in a lot of activities serving the family, there is little to no communication between that husband and wife. If you were to ask the wife to tell you a little bit about her husband's goals and and dreams and ambitions, she would be hard-pressed to answer that question. If you were to ask the husband to, to tell you about the the wife's dreams and ambitions and and how she's feeling emotionally about things, he would be at a loss. And as you look at that marriage relationship, and I ask you to evaluate how healthy it is, you would be forced to tell me, look, they're involved in doing a lot of things. They're extremely busy, seemingly busy doing things for one another, and yet they've missed one of the most fundamental aspects of marriage, the fundamental goal of marriage, This is not a couple that is experiencing oneness. And so, even though they're involved in doing a lot of things, this is not a healthy relationship because they're not pursuing oneness in this relationship. And in reality, all these activities are nearly useless. Now, imagine I ask you to evaluate the health of another relationship. Imagine I said, I'd like you to tell me about your relationship with the Lord. How healthy is that relationship? And as you thought about your relationship with the Lord, you said, well, I would assume that things are are pretty good. Uh, The Lord and I are are pretty busy. I'm doing a lot of things for God. I'm involved in church activities. I'm a very spiritual person. I'm involved in doing things that God has called me to do, like caring for my kids, caring for my friends, caring for my my parents. I'm involved in, in a lot of activities, and I can point to a lot of things that I'm doing that seem kind of spiritual, but Perhaps the more you thought about it, you'd realize, you know what? I know very little about God in, the, in terms of what he thinks about me. I don't know how he views me. I'm not sure what he thinks about what I'm doing with my life. I'm not sure about what God is really like in relationship to me. I'm not sure how pleased God is with our relationship at all. In fact, maybe the more you think about it, you realize our relationship is very cold and distant. Our relationship is not characterized by me having a devotion to God, but by me being distracted away from God. This morning, we're looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, and we're seeing the story of a distracted disciple. A disciple of Jesus who's involved in a lot of activity, but whose life is not characterized at this moment in time by devotion. 
And we're going to see what causes her to be a distracted disciple, what causes her to turn her, away, her attention away from the Lord, Jesus Christ, onto other things. And as we look at this story of Martha and her distractions away from Jesus, what we're going to see are four characteristics of a distracted disciple. And as we look at those characteristics of a distracted disciple, perhaps you and me might find some parallels with our own lives. And as we look at these characteristics, we can see ways in which we turn our attention more fully upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, let's go ahead and as, as we turn to this story and look at it more closely, what I, I hope you gain from this is this desire to relentlessly pursue a relationship with your Lord Jesus Christ. That there's a renewed fervor, a renewed heart to pursue relentlessly the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 38 as we begin looking at this first characteristic, the first characteristic of the distracted disciple. The distracted disciple is distracted by good things. Number one, the distracted disciple is distracted by good things. Verse 38 says, now they entered, they went on their way and Jesus entered a village. And we know that this village most likely is the village of Bethany because who's living there? Well, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are very close friends of Jesus. In John chapter 11 and John chapter 12, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are described as the family that, that Jesus loved. That's John chapter 11. John chapter 12, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the chief priests try to kill Lazarus. And in John chapter 12, you see Jesus still fellowshipping with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And so this, this family is a family that we see Jesus interacting very tenderly with. There's a close relationship that he has with this sis, these sisters and their brother and a great love that they have for Jesus. So Jesus enters the village here in verse 38. Remember Luke is telling us about Jesus' travels. And as he enters the village of Bethany, it's of no surprise that as he enters that village, Martha, the text tells us, welcomed him into her home. That word welcome doesn't mean she just said, hey, hey, Jesus, how you doing? Feel free to stop by for a glass of water or something. No, this idea of welcoming in this culture means that Martha was practicing something we call hospitality. In the Greek and Roman cultures, hospitality was a very high virtue. As you see in, in the Greek and Roman literature, uh, hospitality included responsibilities both of the host and the guest. They were supposed to respond to one another in a certain way. The guest had certain obligations toward the host. The host had certain obligations toward the person that was his or her guest. In fact, if you look at the ancient Greek story of the Odyssey, as you look at the characters in the Odyssey, good characters in the Odyssey, the, the story of Odysseus's trip home, good characters in the Odyssey always are good guests or good hosts. Bad characters are always bad hosts or bad guests. For example, the Cyclops as he welcomes guests into his home, instead of providing the guests food, he tries to eat them, okay? Always, like, that's like etiquette 101, don't eat your guests, all right? Hospitality in the Greek-Roman culture, there were certain rules for the host, certain rules for the guests. In Jewish culture, in Jewish customs, uh, Abraham was exalted as a, as a great host. Remember in Genesis, he welcomes those strangers into his home. He, he bows low before them. He says, come, let me get you some water. Let me wash your feet. He goes and he tells, uh, his, he tells Sarah to get some stuff together. He tells 
someone to go uh, kill this, this little uh, tender young calf to provide them with something to eat. And he's just in a, he just does all that he can to provide for these strangers. He's a good host. In the Gospel of Luke that we've been looking at so far, you've seen several examples of, of hospitality, both good and bad. Remember, Jesus admonishes Simon the Pharisee. He says, look, Simon, when I came into your house, you didn't wash my feet. You didn't provide me uh, with, with a kiss or you didn't anoint me with oil. I mean, you didn't do all the things that a good host should do. In Luke chapter 9 and 10, as Jesus commissions his disciples, he tells them, hey, rely upon good hospitality. And while you're staying at people's homes, be a good guest. In other words, what I'm saying with all this is this. In the Gospel of Luke, here in chapter 10, as we see Martha welcoming Jesus into her home, understand that Martha is doing a good thing. She's welcoming Jesus into her home. She's practicing hospitality. This is exactly what she should have done. Now, as the story goes on, we see a contrast between these two sisters. Look at verse 39. As Martha welcomes Jesus into her home, Luke tells us, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. So, in other words, what happens is this, and I, my assumption is that Jesus, and we know he's traveling with his disciples, and so my assumption is that he enters this village with his disciples. Perhaps that's not the case, but I believe that to be the case. Jesus and his disciples enter this village, and he's there with his disciples, and Martha says, come into my home. And so Jesus enters into Martha's home, and Jesus sits down, and then we would have the disciples sitting down, and it says that Mary sits down as well, and she sits down at his feet. And we think, well, Jesus, that's a little bit rude. Why not give Mary a chair or something? Luke is very deliberate in telling us that Mary is sitting at his feet. In this culture, We've seen before that as people enter a home and sit down, they might recline on cushions or they might sit on little couch-like structures. But Mary takes this position at Jesus' feet, and the position at someone's feet indicated that you viewed them as a teacher. This is a, this is a, a, a relationship between a rabbi and his disciple. Jesus' disciples would sit at his feet and receive instruction from him. And sitting at his feet indicated that they viewed him as their rabbi, as their teacher. This would have been a shocking thing for Luke's audience to read. That a woman sat down as a disciple at her rabbi's feet, assuming the position of a disciple. Now, this isn't the main point of the text. But let me take a little bit of a moment here and, and give an aside I don't think Luke's purpose here is to talk about gender roles, but let me just take a, a moment away, pause from the story for a second, and, and just say some words here that I, I think are good applications from this, this verse that we see Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. And these are words to those of us who are conservative evangelical Christians. I believe that the conservative evangelical church has often struggled with male chauvinism, with an unbiblical view of proper gender roles. Now, I'm a conservative evangelical, and I believe in distinct roles for men and women, both in the church and in the home. However, I will say that I believe that sometimes the church has had a male-centeredness to its application of that principle that's not biblical. 
Let me just say this, first of all, the, those of you who are, are women, young ladies, older ladies, somewhere in between, as you see the biblical teaching regarding the roles of a woman in the, in the home and in the church, do not be deceived. God's call on you is to fully engage your mind and your intellect in understanding him and his word. And men, let me say this to you. Whenever you embrace the biblical teaching regarding roles in a home or in a church, for example, let's say a home, you say, well, uh, Scripture talks about the the husband being the, the head of the wife and the husband taking a leadership role in his home. That is exactly right, but do not dare make this mistake. Do not dare accept the biblical teaching on roles in a marriage relationship and then impart a worldly understanding to defining those roles. In other words, don't say, well, God has said that I'm to be the leader of my home and then assume a worldly understanding as to what a leader is. I'm a leader of my home. That means that, that I, what I say goes, I'm kind of the king of the castle here. That is an unbiblical understanding of leadership. God's call on a husband as he leads his family is to be the greatest servant in that marriage relationship and in that family relationship. God's call on a husband is to make sure through sacrificial leadership that his wife is able to sit at the feet of Jesus. Well, that's a little bit of an aside here. Let's go back to the story. Jesus is teaching, and Mary is is sitting there at Jesus' feet with the other disciples, learning from Jesus. And then the text tells us, as Jesus is teaching and Mary is sitting there, Martha, we read in the first part of verse 40, is distracted with much serving. Martha is distracted with much serving. She's doing good ministry, but she's distracted by it. She's involved in in all sorts of things that are associated with being a good host. That reminds us here of the principle, this first principle, the distracted disciple, the one who's distracted, whose attention is distracted away from Jesus, is not necessarily always distracted by bad things. Oftentimes, the distracted disciple is distracted by good things. In other words, the text doesn't say, and Martha was distracted because she wanted to just go take a break outside. Martha was distracted because she decided to go like kick a cat or something. Uh, Martha isn't distracted by bad things. Martha is distracted by good things. The distracted disciple can often, to point, can often point to things that are distracting them that are good things, and that's what happens with Martha here. If you think about applying this principle, perhaps uh, this is you sometimes. Maybe you're a person who feels the, the weight of responsibility very strongly. Maybe you feel the weight of responsibility at school, or you feel the weight of responsibility at, at home, or you feel the weight of responsibility at, at work, and as you think about all the responsibilities that have been placed upon you by your family, or, or by your friends, or by your work, you can just become very overwhelmed by those things. And they're not bad things, but they distract you from that which is most important. Martha is not distracted by bad things. She's distracted by something good. And so my question for you, as you think about applying this principle, is this. What are the good things in your life that you need to repent of? What are the good things in your life that you need need to say, you know what, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. This has distracted me from my primary responsibility to know and worship and love God. 
Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your hobby. Maybe it's your me time. Maybe it's even your children. Maybe it's some friends at school. What is it that's caused you to become so busy that you've been distracted from your primary responsibility to engage in worship of God? The distracted disciple is not distracted by bad things always, but sometimes distracted by that which is good. Well, the second principle we see at the last part of verse 40, the distracted disciple, another characteristic of the distracted disciple is that he or she is distracted by, or the the distracted disciple is resentful of others. The distracted disciple is resentful of others. Look at verse 40 again. Remember, Martha has has just, uh, we've just been told that she's been distracted with much serving. And then she says, it says that she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my, dis- my sister has left me to serve her alone? Tell her then to help me. And so let's think of the picture here again. Jesus is teaching. Mary's seated at, seated at his feet. And the, the language that Luke uses here tells us that Mary continues to sit there while Martha continues to be distracted. In other words, uh, Martha goes out and welcomes Jesus into her home, and Mary sits at Jesus' feet. Martha goes and and maybe gets some water and washes the disciples' feet and Jesus' feet, and Mary sits at Jesus' feet. Martha goes out to the market and grabs some food. Mary sits at Jesus' feet. Martha begins to prepare the food. Mary sits at Jesus' feet. Mary continues to do what she's doing. Martha continues to do what she's doing, which is being distracted. Now, You have been in Martha's position before, and you know how frustrating that can be. You have this expectation for what another person should be doing, and you're bothered by it. You don't say anything at first, but the more they continue to do what's driving you crazy, and the more you continue to do what you think they should be doing, the worse it gets. Kids, you've been in this situation before. Mom and dad, before you leave for school, they tell you, hey, be sure to pick up the socks I saw in the hallway. You forget about it. You go off to school. Dad comes by after you've left for school, sees the socks in the hallway, goes, oh, that kid. And you're away at school the entire day, but every time dad goes by those socks, it's like you're disobeying him again, and it drives him insane. You come home and you do your homework. He forgets about the socks momentarily. You do your homework, you go to bed. He comes down the hallway, there are those socks again. Get out of bed, what are you doing? Go pick up those socks. What did I do? Well, it's, you've continued not doing what he wanted you to do, even though you're blissfully unaware. Mary continues to sit at Jesus' feet. Martha continues to work, and she is so distracted that she becomes more and more resentful of Mary. The distracted disciple, as he or she turns her attention away from the Lord Jesus Christ and onto other people becomes more and more resentful as they see the inability of others to do what they think they should be doing. And that's what happens with Martha here. She becomes more and more frustrated with Mary's lack of doing what she thinks Mary should be doing that she blows up at Jesus. Jesus, she essentially accuses him of lacking care for her. She says, Lord, Don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. You want to teach Mary, Jesus? I've got a suggestion for a curriculum. Why don't you teach her about hospitality? Lord, Lord, why aren't you telling her to do what I think that she should be doing? 
the distracted disciple is resentful of others. Here's a great test for you. How do you feel? How do you feel toward your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have kind of a resentment as you think about your brothers and sisters in Christ? As you think about the things that they're involved in, do you kind of get a little frustrated? You know, I can't stand that this person isn't supporting the work of the church the way I am. I don't think they're giving the way that I'm giving. I don't think they're serving in nursery the way that I'm serving in nursery. I don't think that they're involved in ministry the way that I think that they should be involved in ministry. I'm pretty sure that at the potluck, I brought something really nice, and they just brought out some Chewy Chips Ahoy cookies. I'm very disturbed by this person's lack of spiritual maturity. God, will you please deal with their lack of spiritual maturity? The distracted disciple turns away from the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and begins looking at other people, and their heart becomes resentful. And right now, if you can think of brothers and sisters in Christ that you're resentful of because you don't think that they're where they need to be and you wish God would deal with them, that reveals the heart of a distracted disciple. Notice in the text, Martha is not concerned with Jesus. She's, first of all, turned away by all these different things, and then she gets turned, on these other, turned away from the Lord onto all these other things. She doesn't even look at Jesus anymore. What's the dominant thought of her heart? It's not Jesus, it's Mary. And it's not a nice thought about Mary either. She's distracted. You see that distraction in her resentment toward other people. Romans 14 talks about how to treat other people. He says in verse 13 of Romans chapter 14, Paul says, Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. That's the right heart attitude toward other people, letting God God deal with them and understand that their relationship with God is not for us to involve ourselves in, in in many contexts. The distracted disciple disciple is resentful of other people. Oscar Wilde tells this fable. He says that the devil was traveling across the Libyan desert and encountered some of his minions trying to tempt a holy hermit. As they tried to tempt this holy hermit, the holy hermit was able to resist all the temptations. They showed him all the pleasures of the world, the riches of the world, and the holy hermit was impervious to all of those. And then the devil came and he pushed aside his minions, and he said, your methods are far too crude. And he leans over and whispers in the hermit's ear, your brother has just been made bishop. Wilde writes that the, a, a, a scowl of jealousy passed over the hermit's face. As we distract, as we become distracted away from the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ onto others, the tendency of our heart is toward resentment as we see the failings in others. Don't turn your eyes off God and onto others. Test your heart. How do you feel toward other believers? If your heart is full of resentment, anxiety towards other people, know that you at that moment are a distracted disciple. The third characteristic of the distracted disciple we see in verse 41, the distracted disciple is is anxious and, and troubled over many things, over many things. So uh, Mary has continued to sit at Jesus' feet. 
and listen to Jesus' teaching. Martha has continued to work, doing these things. Martha works, Mary sits. Martha works, Mary sits. Martha comes up to Jesus and says, why don't you teach her about hospitality? And Jesus says, Martha, that's a great point. Mary, get up and help your sister. No, it's not what he says, is it? The Lord looks at Martha in a very loving way. Listen to what he says. He says, Martha, 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 dear Martha, repetition of her name, Martha, Martha, you're, you're troubled and you're anxious about many things. Well, Luke earlier says she was distracted by much ministry. Now he says you're, you're distracted by, by many things. Jesus does exactly with Martha what happens to so many of us as we bring our concerns about others to God. God, have you, have you considered... Have you considered my spouse and, and how frustrating they are? And as we listen to God's word and his voice, he says, have you considered yourself? God, have you, continue, have you considered my friend who's gossiping about me and saying all these bad things about what I'm doing? And God says, have you decided maybe you should stop doing those things that they're gossiping about? Jesus looks at Martha and says, Martha, Martha, you're you're, you're troubled and you're anxious about, about many things. As, as your heart is considering all these things, you've turned your attention away from God and, and onto these things, and it's caused anxiety and it's caused trouble. Uh, this word anxious means to be unduly concerned about. Uh, trouble means to be disturbed by something. And both of them come from a heart of, of unbelief. If you'd like to take a moment, you can keep your finger there in Luke chapter 10 and turn back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, we see that being a distracted disciple is a sin. It's a, a, a fruit of unbelief in our lives. Verse 25 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, very pointedly, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Verse 32, well, verse 31, he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the unbelievers, seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. What do you do instead? In other words, verse 32 is saying, look, do you think God isn't smart enough to know that you need all these things? Do you think you're worried about food and God's saying, oh, food, I hadn't thought about that. They do need food. <laughs> it says, what do you do instead? Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, they'll take care of themselves. The person who becomes anxious and troubled is a person in their heart who is not believing God. The person who becomes anxious and troubled in their heart is rejecting God's word that says, 
look, the most important thing that you need to concern yourself with is my righteousness and how you can seek my kingdom and receive my righteousness as a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Whenever our second child was born, our son, the first night that he was born, I was feel, just filled with great anxiety. As I, I looked at him, and, and I just I, I remember the health concerns we had with his sister, and, and I was just consumed. I was consumed with a lack of peace. In fact, I, I told Whitney, I said, "You go ahead and go to bed. Uh, I'm not taking him down to those nurses in that in that neonatal unit or whatever. I, I don't trust those quacks." My apologies to anyone that worked at the hospital at that time. I do trust you. I said, I'm watching him. I'm just going to stay up all night, as many nights as it takes, and I'm just going to watch him to make sure that he's okay. My mom passed on a verse to me. Psalm chapter 4, verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The person who's focused on this world and is focused on the things that are around them can be very can become very anxious and troubled. You know, there's a lot of bad stuff out there. The economy right now is really bad. There's not a lot of just great, fantastic news out there about the economy. Uh, there are a lot of bad family situations that are represented in this room. There's a lot of bad things going on in your life, and it would be very easy for me to tell you, you know what, you should probably be troubled by some of the things that are going on in your life. They scare me. But the person who becomes anxious and troubled is the person who's been distracted from the most important thing, and that is the glory and the person of God. And the person who becomes focused upon the glory of God and the person of God and understanding God and being consumed with a love for him isn't going to be distracted and troubled by the other things. The heart of belief is a heart that exalts God and says, God, whatever you choose to do in these other areas of my life, it's going to be okay because I have obtained you, the treasure of great value, the pearl of great price. All the other things can fade away. Anxiety reveals in our hearts that we're distracted disciples. Why don't you try this exercise with me as we think about applying this. While I've been talking, since I began looking at God's word with you this morning, some of you have been consumed with thoughts of other things. Some of you, while I've been talking, have been thinking about a family situation. Some of you, while I've been talking, have been, th- have been thinking about a promotion at work or a situation at work or a situation with a friend at school. Some of you have been distracted away from the things of God even while I've been talking for the last however long I've been talking. Who's keeping score? I want you to do this. I want you to just kind of write down on your bulletin for a moment, what are the things that I've been distracted by because I'm anxious and troubled by them? Maybe you've been distracted as, you, as you've thought about, as you've thought about your, uh, your spouse, as you've thought about your friends, as you've thought about work. As, what is it and maybe it's not even just in the last half hour or so. Maybe it's, maybe it's this last week. There's been something that's been dominating your thoughts and, and you're troubled by it. What is it that's causing you to be distracted away from God? 
The distracted disciple is distracted by good things. He or she is resentful of others. He's anxious and troubled over many things. The last characteristic of the distracted disciple is that the distracted disciple is drawn away from the abiding word of God. There have been a lot of bad interpretations of this parable. Some bad teaching has kind of arisen from this, par- this, uh, this story sometimes. I've heard sometimes a, a pastor's talking about this, this sermon and saying, so what you need to do is you need to, to get away from the hustle and bustle of life and just get into a quiet place and, and just a- around nature and, and just watch the clouds and listen for the voice of God. Some people have used this passage in church history to, to talk about the value of a monastic lifestyle, becoming a monk and getting away from the, the humdrum of the everyday life, and that is not what God calls us to here. This is not a call to meditative uh, silence or some sort of separation from the world. This is a call to sit at the feet of Jesus and engage in understanding him and his word. It's a call to not become distracted by the world, but it's not a call to leave the world. Look at what Jesus continues to say to Martha. He says, you're troubled, you're anxious, about, you're anxious and troubled about many things in verse 42, but one thing is necessary. There's one priority, and the priority is me, and what's happened? Mary, your sister, she chose the good portion. She chose that which is most important, the inheritance that's, that's most valuable. She chose it, and what she has chosen cannot be taken away from her. Psalm 27, listen to what the psalmist writes in verse 4. He says, one thing I asked of the Lord, the psalmist says. There's one thing I asked God for, and what was that? One thing that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. God, there's one thing I've asked, and that is that I could continually focus upon your beauty and glory and be in the temple and hear your word and inquire about you. Verse 11 says, O Lord, teach me your way and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. In other words, God, I want to understand you. I want my understanding of you to affect how I live. Deuteronomy 8.3 says that God led the people, let them hunger, and fed them with manna, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus in John 6.35 says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall Never thirst. Psalm 73, 26, the psalmist says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In other words, for the believer, the thing that the believer desires above all else is to understand and know God, not in some sort of vague, emotional, experiential way, but to know God both intellectually and have that intellectual understanding of God flow into their life and into worship of God. In Psalm 119, verse 59, God, uh, the psalmist says, when I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. 
teach me your statutes. The distracted disciple is distracted away from the word of God. There's something very interesting you'll notice in the text. If you're reading from an English version of of the text, uh, you won't quite see this as clearly, although you'll probably see it noted in your footnotes if you're reading from the English Standard Version. From verses 38 through 42, Jesus' name is, is never, the word Jesus never appears. Now in our translation, verse 38, the word Jesus appears, but they note that this is a, actually it says he in the original language, and they put Jesus there to let you know who the, the he is referring to. But Jesus is referred to as Lord every time he's mentioned in this text. Lord, 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 Lord. How important is it to you to know, to know what your sovereign Lord says? The distracted disciple is drawn away from the living and abiding word of God. The distracting, distracted disciple says, I think I'll find out about God through just kind of thinking about it. The, the distracted disciple says, you know, uh, this, this church thing, the churches that, that spend a lot of time talking about God's word, blah, 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 a little boring. Uh, I, want to, I want to have this emotional experience that, that uh, supersedes any uh, authoritative word of God, and so that's what I'm going to seek out. R.C. Sproul, in his book Knowing Scripture, has a very great, a great admonition to us, and it's, it's a little bit long. I'll, I'll read some of it here. He's talking about a sensuous Christian. He says, a sensuous Christian is one who lives by his feelings rather than through his understanding of the word of God. The sensuous Christian cannot be moved to service, prayer, or study unless he feels like it. His Christian life is only as effective as the intensity of present feelings. He constantly seeks new and fresh spiritual experiences and uses them to determine the word of God. His inner feelings become the ultimate test of truth. The sensuous Christian doesn't need to study the Word of God because he already knows the will of God by his feelings. He doesn't want to know God. He wants to experience him. The sensuous Christian equates a childlike faith with ignorance. He thinks that when the Bible calls this childlike faith, it means a faith without content, a a faith without understanding. The sensuous Christian goes his merry way until the pain of a life that's not so merry is encountered and he folds. Literally thousands of pastors' studies, people are being counseled to act against Scripture because the pastor wants them to be happy. Yes, Mrs. Jones, go ahead and divorce your husband despite the fact you're out without biblical warrant. For I'm sure you will never find happiness married to a man like that. He concludes, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The secret to happiness is found in obedience to God. How can we be happy if we're not obedient? And how can we be obedient if we do not know what it is that we are to obey? Thus, the top and tail of it is that happiness cannot be fully discovered as long as we remain ignorant of God's word. You have no hope of having a healthy relationship with God if you remain ignorant of his word. The distracted disciple 
is distracted away from God, the teaching of his word. I remember one time when I was a youth pastor at Bethany Baptist Church, I, I took a group of children, to, young people, to uh, serve at a, on a mission trip. And we were at a camp, and there was a speaker at the camp that we were serving at. And so one evening we went and we, we stayed, and at the camp we were staying, we, we listened to a teacher that was there. And uh, the teacher didn't say anything bad. It wasn't like this, this teacher told the kids, hey, I want you to go home and disobey your parents and, and hear some cigarettes or something. Uh, all, all the things that the teacher were, were saying were, were good things, nothing heretical. But as we walked out of that, that, that room and we kind of walked back to our cabin, some of, the, some of the kids approached me and said, Dana, what was that guy doing? What, what do you mean? Now, these were young people that had grown up, some of them their entire lives at, at Bethany Baptist Church, and their entire lives had consisted of Pastor Rich's expository preaching, preaching God's word. They said, he didn't, he didn't have a Bible up there. He wasn't giving us God's word. And these young people recognized that there was something wrong about that teaching. And it wasn't that he was saying bad things, but he, he wasn't drawing them to God's word. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there are so many good things out there. But they're not, they're not bad in and of themselves. They're not bad things to do on a Sunday morning. They're not bad things to do with your week. And yet they distract us and draw us away from God's abiding word. I want you to take a moment and think about this question. How am I going to improve in my understanding of God through coming to his word? In fact, close your eyes and bow your heads with me, if, if you will. Take just a moment and answer the question, how do I plan to sit at Jesus' feet? Take a moment and, and talk to God right now and say, say God, I, I failed in, in accurately understanding you and, and being who I'm supposed to be in relationship to you. And, and, and Father, I, I ask for your forgiveness. And here is my plan to sit at your feet and listen to, to Jesus' words. I, I'm going to, and, and, and I'm not saying make rash vows. I'm, I'm going to read through the whole Bible tomorrow. I mean, think about what it is you're going to do over your, the rest of your life, a sustained commitment to sit at Jesus' feet and not be distracted by those other things in your life, but to remove the distractions and to focus upon the beauty and the glory of God. Take a moment and talk to God about that. At the beginning of our time together, I asked you, we continue to pray here. At the beginning of our, our time, I, I asked you to consider how to evaluate the relationship between a husband and a wife who aren't communicating. And then I said, well, what would your relationship with, with a God that you weren't communicating with look like? And now I want you to, to imagine with me a relationship with God in which you're coming to his word, hungry and eager to behold him, not distracted with much ministry, not distracted with much good things, not distracted by relationships, not focused upon other people, but beholding his glory as found in his word. Imagine the sweetness of that relationship, knowing God through his word and knowing what he desires and conforming your character to that. What a beautiful relationship that would be. And Father, as we close our time of looking at your word, that is our, our prayer today, that we would be men and women, 
children of your word, that we would seek it diligently, that we'd be faithful to read it on, on a daily basis, searching to understand more and more who you are, who we are in relationship to you, and fulfilling the plan that you have for our lives. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, for your matchless glory. Amen.